have your Bibles, we're on um, Judges chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out there for you, for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets, can anyone still hear? And empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. 
the army fled to Bethsheta towards Zerira as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Let's pray, friends, as we start. Uh, our gracious God, we pray. Lord, we plead with you now that you might so work in us by your spirit, that you will make your word come alive in our hearts, that you will show us more of the glory of Jesus and all that he's done for us. You'll equip us for a life uh, of joyful and thankful service to you. Please use this time now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, friends, there's no prizes for guessing who's going to win this arm wrestle, right? You've got this one huge muscled arm uh, versus the tiny stick-like arm that looks like it could snap any moment. Okay, I, I won't tell you which one's mine. It's a photo. Or it, no, no, no. It's, uh, <laughs> well, there, there's no surprises, is there? There's no surprises uh, because we know the way that victory works, right? We know how victory works. It's the biggest, it's the strongest, it's the fastest, uh, it's the fittest, it's the team with the best players, the army with the most advanced weapons and the biggest numbers, the one who can outwit, outplay and outlast all the, all the competitors. Uh, that's the one who gets the victory, right? That's just how victory works, it's how uh, we know who's going to win, right, because, because of these things. We, there's no prizes for that. Well, the, last week we looked at the great victory, if you're here, the great victory that belongs to God's people. The great and wonderful victory that belongs to God's people and how it gives us peace and joy. Uh, eternal peace. A wonderful thing that fills our hearts with joy, this incredible victory. But as we turn to the next part of the story of Judges, this story of Gideon, which crosses from chapter 6 all the way through to chapter 8, as we, as we look at this next part of the story, we're going to think a little bit more about victory, about this victory. Uh, we know the fruits of victory, as we saw last week, are peace uh, and peace and joy. But Judges 7 has something uh, critical for us, critical to say to us, about the way in which God chooses to win his battles, the way he goes about getting the victory and what it means for us to take part in his victory. It teaches us something that stands, it's, it's something that stands far apart, friends, from uh, the world's idea of how you win a battle, the world's idea of victory. It teaches us something that we desperately need to hear. God, against every expectation, God triumphs in weakness. God triumphs in weakness and he does it to teach his people something we need to learn. 
Well, friends, uh, if you have your Bibles open, that'll be really helpful. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, focusing in on chapter 7, but we will be dipping in and out of that, so it will be great to have Judges 7 open in front of you so you can uh, tack in on where we're going. Uh, We read right at the start of chapter 7, we were introduced to this character, uh, Jeroboam, that is Gideon. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. This name, Jeroboam, it ties in uh, to the previous chapter, chapter 6. It sort of signals that this is just a a continuing story of what's come before. Uh, Back in chapter 6, this is where it'll help to have your Bibles open, back in chapter 6, Uh, Right at the start of chapter 6, we've seen the familiar cycle. I've put it up there, sort of, um, with reference to Gideon in this story. You're you're becoming familiar with this cycle. Uh, Israel forsakes Yahweh. We read that in chapter uh, 6, verse 1. Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. You see that second one there, Yahweh hands Israel over to their enemies. Uh, Down in verse 7 of chapter 6, the Israelites cry out to the Lord because of Midian, who had oppressed them and uh, been so wicked towards them and impressed them terribly. Not impressed them, oppressed them terribly. Uh, The Israelites cried out to the Lord. And then the rest of the story is this story of Gideon, this judge whom God raises up to save his people. This, this, This judge, Gideon. We're introduced to Gideon uh, a little bit further on in chapter 6. We're going to look a little bit about, uh, at this character Gideon through chapter 6 before we get to chapter 7. Uh, if you're in home groups, we, we read through this, this week, we read through the whole story. So hopefully this will be a familiar thing to you uh, as we read through the week. But chapter 6, uh, if you're looking at chapter 6, um, Gideon there, we're first introduced to him in verse 11. The angel of the Lord comes and sits down under the oak in Ophrah, uh, that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So we've got this image, friends, uh, of Gideon, if you can make it out. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, normally, you thresh wheat out in the open. The threshing of wheat was sort of throwing it up in the air so the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall down and you'd be able to sort of sort it out like that. But Gideon is sort of... Uh, fearfully hiding away in this wine press. He doesn't want to get caught by the Midianites who'd come and sort of take all his grain or whatever it was that he was afraid of them. So we have this image of Gideon sort of hiding away and then there's this ironic moment when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon in chapter 6 verse 12. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's kind of like going to McDonald's and saying to the teenager out the back, greetings, great and wonderful chef, you know. (laughs) Similar sort of thing. You've got this image of Gideon hiding away. Uh, The Lord is with you, great and mighty warrior. And that little sort of phrase, great and mighty warrior, carries through the rest of the story. We do see, by the end, the great and mighty warrior Gideon sort of emerge but his greatness and his might is not in himself, as we'll, we'll go on to see. The Lord is with you. Gideon reacts with sort of uh, bitterness and frustration, if you read through during the week. He reacts with frustration in verse 13 in chapter 6. Pardon me, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? 
I mean, doesn't that resonate? If God is with us, why has all this happened to us? All this oppression. Where is all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when he said, when they said, "Didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt?" So Gideon kind of reacts with frustration at God calling him a mighty warrior and saying, "The Lord is with you." But God ignores the question. The Lord, this uh, this figure, the angel of the Lord, who also is the Lord Himself through the story. It's a bit uh, uh, ambiguous. But the Lord in verse 14, uh, he kind of ignores Gideon's question, doesn't answer him straight away, and he says, all he says is, go, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? Well, now that he's kind of face to face with Yahweh, uh, Gideon thinks better of accusing God and he kind of changes tack. He's a great sort of, he's finding all, every which way to get out of what God wants him to do. He changes tack in verse 15 and he, he starts coming up with excuses. He's just not up to it. Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, how, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. And what is God's response here? He doesn't answer his questions again, sort of they're irrelevant actually to God. God doesn't give him Gideon's uh, um, sort of, um, his fearful trying to get out of it, doesn't give it a hearing. What does God say in verse 16? I will be with you. End of story. (laughs) I will be with you. That's it. Uh, so Gideon, uh, well, Gideon sort of progresses a little bit now, and if you cha- keep travelling through uh, chapter 6, in verse 17, he asks God for a sign. If I've found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that I know it's really you talking to me. Uh, and he goes and gets an, uh, an offering and uh, presents it to this uh, figure that's in front of him, and God gives him a sign. He, the, the, the angel of the Lord touches the offering with his staff and it just, you know, consumes up with fire, this incredible sign. And Gideon admits it, he says. He's seen God up in verse 22. Ah, oh, alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But God graciously says, peace, don't be afraid, you're not going to die. Well, Gideon's, uh, he's tried to make every possible excuse to get out of doing what God's wanted him to. Um, but in the end, he, he says, okay, he does what God says. Uh, and he goes, uh, God tells him to break down his father's altar to Baal. I mean, everything about that is wrong, right? He's your father, he's the, the God of the, world, of the culture around. But Gideon needs to go and break it down. Gideon's, okay, he, he go, goes and does it. Um, but fear has still got a hold of him. Did you notice that if you've read through this chapter during the week? Fear has still got a hold of him. Uh, he sneaks out and does it at night time. He, he, he sneaks out and breaks down this altar to Baal. He does it at night time because he's afraid. He's afraid of being caught. But even though he's afraid of being caught, he still gets found out. He, gets, he does get caught. And his, as you read through the story, his dad sticks up for him and his dad says to, even though it was his dad's altar, uh, his dad sort of defends his son against the town who want to kill Gideon. His dad says, 
Uh, if Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Um, and then Gideon gets called this name, Jeroboam, which sort of technically is something like, let Baal contend with him, or as, you know, maybe more colloquially, Gideon Baal fighter, okay, he's the, the Baal fighter, bring it on Baal, is this nickname that these guys give to Gideon. Well, it's quite an interesting journey of Gideon's through chapter 6, and then you get to the end of the chapter, and we find that there is this huge army that has come against Israel, a massive army of Baal's worshippers, actually, the worshippers of this God. Um, Midianites, Amalekites, other eastern peoples march against Israel, and it, it, it spurs Gideon into, into action, or actually, if you read verse 34, it's the, the Spirit of the Lord that spurs him into action. It comes on Gideon, he blows his trumpet, he summons his, the people to follow him, uh, and he summons the people to war. But even then, towards the end of chapter 6, just to be a cook's tour through the chapter, okay, even then, at the end of chapter 6, he's got his army and kind of facing the prospect of battle against this incredibly huge army, even then he's still unsure. The enemy they face was massive and it was terrible. God had given him great promise of victory an incredible promise, right back in chapter 6, God had, had promised victory to this guy, but when he's actually there, he's, when he's actually sitting there with his army, facing the foe, uh, he's full of fear, he falters, and he again tests God. It's kind of, you can feel the air charged with these two, two camps. And Gideon, he's not sure, he tests God in verse 36 uh, of chapter 6, he says, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know you will save Israel by my hand. Uh, you might have heard of the story of the fleece. Gideon puts this fleece out and he says, Look, if, uh, uh, if, if there's the ground around it is wet, um, Sorry, no, the other way around. If the fleece only is wet and the ground is dry in the morning, then I'll know it's you. And of course it happens. The fleece is wet, the ground is dry. It's not enough for Gideon still. He tests God again and says, well, hang on, can you do the reverse? Come on, God, show me you're really true. Do, do it in reverse. Make the ground all wet and the fleece all dry. And God, of course, does it again. So that's when we come to chapter 7, friends. That's how we sort of flow into this chapter. God has passed all of Gideon's tests. He's passed all of Gideon's tests. So early in the next morning, uh, Gideon gets up. He gets up with his men, facing this incredible, fierce army, overwhelmingly large army. And you can kind of hear him thinking, Okay, <laughs> all right, God, let's do this. You know, I, I don't know how I'm going to win this battle, but you've passed all my tests, and, I, you know, let, okay, let's do it. But God is not done with Gideon yet. God is not done with Gideon yet. 
you get to chapter 7. You see, uh, Gideon already at this point, if you can put yourself in his situation, he has an overwhelming task ahead of him. Uh, He did have about 32,000 men. I'll try and shout over the rain. (laughs) He had 32,000 men, which you think is a lot, and it is a lot. Uh, But we find out later that the Amalekite army, the Midianite army, was so massive that when you looked at it, it looked like a plague of grasshoppers. Have you ever seen a plague of grasshoppers? Just absolutely covered the ground, this swarm. That's how vast and massive the army was, the Midianite army was. But Gideon did have a sizable army. And so, you know, you can kind of see him thinking, well, somehow, I have got 32,000 men. I think I can win this. But then God takes everything away. God takes everything away. It wasn't just against the odds. It was absolutely impossible. Let's see how God does it. He tells Gideon in verse 2, as Gideon looks over the swarm of his enemies and thinks about his kind of moderately impressive 32,000 men, God says to Gideon, Gideon, you have too many men. You have too many men. So here we are. Here's Gideon's army. Each of those is 10,000 men. Okay? So God uh, has ten, he says you have too many men. And you, as you read through... Uh, you kind of find out that God whittles them down and uh, two-thirds of the army are sent home. Okay, see you later, guys. So he's already already had his army cut by two-thirds. It turns out they're the ones who are trembling with fear. Okay, most most of the army thought this was a really dumb idea, okay, to go into this battle. And Gideon, the Lord told Gideon to, to tell those guys, that's fine, you can go. That's fine. See you later. Um, they knew that there was no hope in this battle, so off they went. So poor old Gideon's left with 10,000 who are either, they're either incredibly brave or incredibly you know, stupid and foolish. Uh, but even then, God wasn't done. He sends 97% of them home. See you later, guys. And there we go. 97%. Of the army are gone, and all you're left with is some unimpressive little left leg or right leg or whatever that is <laughs> of his army. Either way, it is a tiny, tiny. It's a strange episode that where, where God does this. This is the one where they lap with their tongues, or they get down and sort of drink the the water. It's a bit of a strange episode. Those who scoop the water with their hands. Whereas all, all those who just shoved their heads in the water and drunk it. Um, the significance of the lapping, we're told the ones who lapped like a dog uh, were sort of kept. Uh, lots of different sort of theories about that. Uh, the fact that they lapped like dogs might mean that these men are the unusual ones. It's a bit uh, kind of, why, um, we're not sure why you would put that detail in. They lapped like a dog. It might hint that they're the, the odd ones, the unusual ones. Maybe it might simply be that they are the smaller number. You know, just just that's the only reason. They're just that they're the smaller number. But either way, Gideon is maybe it's some other reason too. But either way, Gideon is left with a tiny group, one percent, less than one percent of his original force. 
an insignificant blip compared to the locusts, the plague of locusts army <laughs> that they faced. And just then, when things look as bad as they could, they could, we're reminded that in all of that change, friends, in all of that, there is one constant, one thing that hasn't changed, that hasn't been whittled down. What did God say to Gideon right back in chapter 6? I will be with you. I will be with you. God is with Gideon and he can save just as well with a group of misfits as he can with an army of 32,000. So it's the night before the battle, friends. Through chapter 7 we read, yeah, you know, everything is tense. Gideon and his tiny little uh, group of 300 are camped against this massive army. They're wondering what the morning will bring. And God speaks to Gideon in verse 9 of chapter 7. Uh, verse 9, God speaks to him and says, Get up and go down to the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. But this next little bit is so wonderful, isn't it? God knows, God knows Gideon's fearful heart. He knows Gideon's fearful heart. And it's wonderful how kind he is to little old Gideon. He goes on in verse 10. If you are afraid to attack, I mean, if, <laughs> 300 men against those, if you're afraid to attack, well, if you are afraid to attack, God says, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. And it turns out, no surprises, Gideon is still afraid. He's still afraid. He has seen amazing signs from God. He's had incredible confirmation that God is really with him and can do what he says. But still, when he's actually facing it, still he's afraid. And I think, friends, we shouldn't be too hard on Gideon at this point. Can you imagine him? with his servant Pura, sneaking down to this, I mean, this, uh, this army, this huge camp of people who were intent on killing him, uh, who, this overwhelming force. Can you imagine the fear that you'd experience doing that? But God has promised he will hear something that will encourage him. So, despite his fear, he presses on. And he finds that not everything is as it seems as he gets down to the Midianite camp. As we read through, you would have picked this up. Uh, not everything, everything isn't as it seems. You see, there's fear in Gideon's heart, but there is fear in the Midianite camp as well. There's fear in the Midianite camp. He, uh, he, over, he, he sort of creeps down to the edge of the camp and he overhears in someone's tent. Uh, so he's getting right close to this, this army up to the side of the tents, and he overhears a man telling his friends this bizarre dream is the bizarrest dream of this big barley loaf, uh, this a barley kind of loaf of bread, tumbling down the hill and crashing into a tent and collapsing it. Okay, it's this kind of bizarre dream, one of those dreams you wake up and think, 
you know, <laughs> what was that all about? Totally weird. Uh, so this guy's telling his friend about this dream, but this, the guy's friend knows what it's about. He knows what's going on. We're, we don't, we're not told how this guy knows, uh, but he knows. Presumably, God has revealed it to him in some way. He knows that this means God has given this whole army into the hands of Midian and his odd little 300. So the, the, Mid- the Midianites' uh, friend, the, the two guys that they overhear, his friend knows uh, that that is the case. That was in verse 14 of chapter 7. This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelites. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And at long last, this is the moment this whole story has kind of been building towards. Uh, finally, through all his anger, uh, through all his frustration, through all his fear, uh, through all his failing, through all his doubts, finally, Gideon in verse 15, when he hears this dream and its interpretation, he bows down and worships. He bows down and worships God. He is blown away by this dream. He falls to his knees in worship. And from this moment on in the story, Gideon sort of gets up from this point, and it's like he's a new man. It's like he's a renewed sort of guy. Uh, It's as if this moment where he falls down and worships, he acknowledges his own hopelessness and God's great, incredible power and provision and his goodness. This moment of worship, it's as if it's filled him with a kind of new courage and ingenuity as he goes around. He comes up with this great plan as you read through. Um, there's, no pl- there's no hint that sort of God revealed this plan to him, as in sort of gave it to Gideon, and which uh, is this wonderful uh, kind of connection between God's absolute sovereignty over this whole situation and Gideon's own responsibility, his, his own ingenuity and strategizing. See, God's promise didn't let Gideon off from making plans. Uh, what it meant was that he could make his plans confidently, not confident in the plans or in himself, but he could make his plans at peace, knowing that God will take what he does in faith and use it for his good purposes. So uh, he puts this plan into action. It's a brilliant plan, right? As When you're faced with a huge and overwhelming army, uh, make your army seem like a huge army as well, even though you're only tiny. Uh, So in three groups, as we read through, you would perhaps pick this out, in three groups they spread out around the Midianite camp. Each of them hides a torch under a jar with one hand. It must must have been pretty hard to manage holding all this, but they have a torch in one hand with a jar and a trumpet in the other, and they sneak up in the middle. Essentially their battle plan is, let's sneak up in the middle of the night and say, boo! (laughs) So they, they, they surround the camp... Uh, And everyone all at once breaks the jars. The Midianites are suddenly surrounded. Can you imagine a dark night? (laughs) 
Perhaps this um, rumour of this dream has filtered through the camp, maybe, this dream that these guys have had, maybe. But either way, a dark night. And then all of a sudden, the camp is surrounded by bright, flaming lights. And not just a few trumpets, but uh, hundreds of trumpets all playing at once, this deafening noise. It was a brilliant plan, friends. But even with Gideon's brilliant plan, if you look down in verse 22 of chapter 7, even with his brilliant plan, it was only through God's intervention, his work, that the plan came off at all. Verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Uh, the Midianite camp, sort of this, you can imagine this scene of this unbelievably large camp of people just going crazy, sort of imploding on each other, turning on each other, panicking. Uh, the, the, the kind of chaos will set in, panic sets in. Um, we're told that God did that, and God caused that to happen, and the, the army flees. And God gives Gideon a great and incredible victory. And you re- sort of read through the rest of the details, and chapter 8 tells of the, the sort of uh, that victory playing out, which we won't have time to get into today. Well, there's so much that ought to really resonate with us here in this story, friends. There's so much that resonates. Now, the way we see God work here is the way He constantly works in His world. Again and again, He triumphs in weakness. He uses the unlikely ones, the ones who hide in wine presses, the fearful ones, the nobodies, the nothings. And of course, we have seen the same pattern in the ultimate outworking of his power. Uh, In his greatest victory, in the man of sorrows, our Lord Jesus. The man of sorrows, lowly carpenter, betrayed and hanging alone to die on a Roman cross in order that he might bring about the greatest victory over sin and evil and death. Why does God do this? Why does he win his victories like this, in this kind of a way? We read it, actually, in verse uh, 2 of chapter 7. It's a key verse to understanding why God acts in this way. Chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 2, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me, my own strength has saved me. See what God's doing here? He works in this way, to teach Israel not to boast in their own strength, but to trust in Him who was with them and who was mighty to save. So there's two ways you can respond to God's victory, sort of coming out of this story. There's the way of Israel, which really is the way of every broken human heart, isn't it? I mean, to take God's gift, uh, what He freely gives, and to sort of treat it as if it were our own and to sort of get proud about it or 
to be proud of our own strength, our own efforts. But then, friends, there is the way of Gideon, the way that Gideon is sort of forced to (laughs) through having everything stripped away from him. All through the story, Gideon struggles. He struggles with doubts. He struggles with doubts about God, about himself. Now, the story about the fleece, uh, that's not something we're supposed to copy. Um, the The story of the fleece is not a pattern for how to find God's will in your life. Gideon knew exactly what God wanted him to do. So please don't put fleeces out. Gideon knew exactly what God wanted him to do. He just didn't want to do it. He was afraid. He didn't trust God. He didn't trust himself. But Gideon is transformed. God patiently, oh, this is so good, isn't it? God patiently and graciously reveals himself to Gideon. And Gideon realizes that while he was, he was right not to trust himself, he was right not to trust himself, he could totally, absolutely and unconditionally trust God. That's why he bows down to worship. He knew he was a nobody. He knew he was a no-hoper. But he was loved and chosen and given the promise of victory by the great somebody. He hadn't seen the victory played out yet. At this point, when he bows down to worship, he hasn't seen the victory played out. But he knew it was already won. And in that confidence, he went boldly to the battle. My friends, this is the way God works, and it is good news for Gideons. It is good news for Gideons. And I just want to extend a bit of an invitation to weaklings, okay? So if you're a weakling here, a bit of an invitation to you. Uh, Will we have a kind of Gideon-like moment today? Maybe it might be for you the first time that that you recognize who God is. And in your heart, you bow down and worship Him. It may be for you that's the first time. Um, but friends, Gideon was God's man before he heard this dream and before he bowed down and worshipped. He was God's man already, but he was afraid. He was uncertain. He was swayed by the opinions of others. He didn't have to be. And God, in his kindness, led Gideon through his fear and into faith to a faith, a trust in God that was, in, was confident and risk-taking and liberating. My friends, just like Gideon, I hate to break it to you, but we are a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> well, I am at least. But some of us, I know we all are. Some of us feel that more than others. Uh, but it's true for us all. There are fears that grip all of our hearts. Now, we have failed time and time again. I just want to, there, there are lots of echoes through this story. And one of the strongest that we pick up in the New Testament, uh, one of the strongest is found in this wonderful passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to land here. We'll finish by thinking about this incredible passage, friends. 
Uh, Paul writes, For what we preach is not ourselves. Isn't that good news? What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Too often, friends, we think that our brokenness disqualifies us from serving God when the reality is it is the one thing that qualifies us, actually. There is wonderful freedom, brothers and sisters, in being absolutely redundant (laughs) and useless, actually. Uh, God, well, God uses useless people. God doesn't need us, friends. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me to do his great work. I'm just a clay jar, a crackpot in the corner, you know. Uh, He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. He loves you. And if your trust is in Christ, he has filled you with the brightest, richest treasure, the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. See, friends, see what this is saying. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that is our great barley loaf moment, (laughs) if I can put it like that. That is our great and complete revelation that God is real and that he fights for us. That in Jesus the battle is already won even though, like Gideon, we wait for it to be played out. It's at the foot of the cross, friends, it's at the foot of the cross that we, weak, fragile, fearful clay jars, are called to bow down and worship and rise up with our hearts filled with this treasure, the light of this knowledge. And friends, that's what will move us, like Gideon, from our fear to faith. It's when we recognise that we're nobodies and that God is the great somebody, that his light will shine out from us. You pray with me as we finish. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this story of Gideon. We thank you for your incredible kindness and mercy and grace to this fearful and bumbling person, uh, the way in which uh, you just continue to reveal yourself to him over and over again. Thank you for the way you uh, brought him to the point where he worshipped you uh, and through him you achieved a great victory. Lord, we thank you for, uh, Lord, we are in such a better place even than him. We have the complete once and for all wonderful outworking of your presence with us, the complete certainty that you are real and that you are fighting for us in the cross and resurrection. Lord, may we uh, 
May we come again and again to that moment and have our hearts filled with faith. May we turn our eyes away from ourselves and onto Jesus. Lord, keep us from ever being proud. Uh, May we know the joy of being humble, dependent people on you. And we do pray that you will be pleased to use us for your great purposes. Thank you for inviting us into them. In Jesus' name, amen.